Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, where we are here today with Eleanor Lerman to discuss her latest book, Watkins Glen, published by May Alpha Press in 2021. Um, so I currently live about like an hour away from Watkins Glen, um, so I'm really excited to talk with you about your novel. So thanks for coming on to discuss it with me. Delighted to be here. So could you start off um, introducing yourself and sort of sharing where the idea from, the idea for like where this book sort of came from? Um. I grew up, I spent part of my childhood in Rockaway, New York, which is a, an old a beach town. Um, it's a very fancy place now, but when I was younger, it was, uh, it was kind of paradise for little kids. And then later, my father, uh, my mother died, my father remarried, and he decided he, we would move back to Rockaway from, we lived in the Bronx in, in New York. And he wanted to move back to Rockway because I think he thought it was still the paradise he remembered from our childhood. But uh, that was the 70s, and it was the time when uh, Rockaway was going through a transition from it had been a place where uh, the children of immigrants, the, the adult children of immigrants, used to go for their summers because it was inexpensive. But times had changed and people weren't going to go spend their summers in boarding houses and bungalows anymore. <laughs> they were going to the Bahamas and they were going to Europe. So um, the city of New York, this little beach town was part of the city of New York. And the city began tearing down all the bungalows and the houses. And But then they ran out of money. So all that was left was empty beach and miles of empty lots and, and ruin. And uh, so I knew what it was like to live in a place where it had been um, paradise. It had been very busy. It had been uh, well known as a place that you went for vacation. And now it was it was deserted. And mm-hmm. I was a high school kid, you know, so uh, what we did in the bad kids, you know, good kids and bad kids. I was one of the bad kids. So what the bad kids did was, you know, we'd cut school and we'd hang out in the half torn down buildings and um, (laughs) hang out on the beach, you know, the empty beach when no one was there. So I knew what it was like to live in a place that I always thought of as a dual landscape because you had the idea of what it was like when it was a popular place, excuse me, and yet now I knew what it was like when it was deserted and you were the outsiders. So Watkins Glen for me became the representation of a place like that, where 
um, it's known for a specific thing. It's known for the car races and people go to Watkins Glen and they think how wonderful, how beautiful. But there's also a life that goes on in Watkins Glen and lots of little upstate towns mm-hmm. um, when it's not the season mm-hmm. and when they're, you know, when it's quiet. And so that Watkins Glen for me became a kind of metaphor for all these places where there are dual landscapes. The place where it's busy and people think how wonderful and it's very successful economically, but there are other lives going on that are apart from the mainstream. And that's really where the idea came from. Yeah, so I'm kind of wondering how how that sort of idea of dual landscape come um, plays into the plot because um, I guess like briefly sort of the story is about um, what's the main character's name, Susan, and how she comes to take care of her brother, Mark, who has like early onset Alzheimer's. Yes. Um, yes. So that's kind of like the, the, the plot that's going on. But I'm kind of curious as to how like the idea of dual landscape sort of plays into that or if it, if it does at all sort of like in the terms of layering. It does because in the story, she's living in a, town that's in a, right near Watkins Glen. So she knows what it's like to be part of the town. The, she knows what the mainstream life of the town is and what the main landscape is, but she lives in a place that's apart from it. So she understands the idea of a dual landscape. She works in Watkins Glen sometimes. She works in a gift shop, but then she goes home to a place that they call Glen Downey, which is a little town outside. And so the idea of dual landscapes, I think, plays through the whole book because the brother also, Mark, is someone who was a teacher. He had a life. He had a a wife. You know, he had a nice upper middle class life. But his wife has died and and he's beginning to become ill. And uh, because he has early onset Alzheimer's, he's almost living in a dual landscape. He remembers some parts of life but then other parts, he doesn't. He doesn't know where he is and, and that sort of thing. So the idea of a dual landscape, I think, is threaded throughout the whole book. Of course, there's also an imaginary sea monster in the book. And what the brother sees in the lake, he thinks he sees a, a lake monster. And of course, it's not really there, but he sees the landscape that way. He sees the lake with a creature in it. So there's another dual landscape. Yeah, I definitely want to get back to the to the Senny, the <laughs> lake monster. Um, but sort of um, maybe coming away from maybe landscape, or would you say, or do you think, it's something, it's something I, I was also kind of wondering is like, sort of like setting as character. Um, and maybe, I guess maybe we can touch on that now about sort of how, sort of how the landscape of the place, because like, yeah, you mentioned um, that Watkins Glen is known for its racing, but it's also known for the gorges and the mm-hmm. lakes that are there. So I'm just kind of wondering um, how that aspect of landscape also plays into sort of setting setting the scene. There, um, What was also important to the book is um, the ecology of the place, because uh, there was a couple of years ago, there was supposed to be a fish concert there. Watkins Glen is also famous for, you know, fish has its concert there every year. But one year, um, 
there were storms and there was a lot of runoff into Seneca Lake. And the water was so polluted, Seneca Lake provides the drinking water for the area. So the water was so polluted, they couldn't have the concert because there wasn't enough water resources to serve all these people who were going to show up. So in that way, also, um, the ecology of the area served the story because in the story, the brother, Mark, um, becomes, there is something like that happens. There are storms, the lake becomes polluted, and the brother becomes very worried that the lake monster that he sees in the water uh, has somehow been harmed by this, especially when they, uh, they really, in real life, they've been real life in the book, they begin trying to clean the lake and they're using dredging equipment. And he's worried that the dredging equipment has harmed Seni, the lake monster he believes exists. And so I used, you know, the, my memory of what happened with the fish concert to actually inform the ecological disaster in the book and, you know, his fear about the imaginary monster, which of course is really his fear about himself. Hmm. Um, could you go into that a little bit more? I thought that um, I hadn't really started out with the idea of there being a lake monster, mm-hmm. but then I realized there would trying to think about how Mark felt and how frightened mm-hmm. he was by what was happening to him. Um, the idea of a lake monster became the metaphor for him of his wish that there was something mysterious and magical in the world, but also the danger to the lake monster is his fear that what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. Here I have a I believe there is this mystical creature in the water but now I'm afraid that something has happened to it, that it's been harmed by what's, you know, by them trying to dredge the lake. And again, it was uh, a way of trying to explain to myself and my imagining it and to someone reading the book, what it would be like to have, not really have total control of your mind and your imagination. But it was also a way later in the, in the story of a way of saying that, your, as you get older, your imagination can help save you. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like, I imagine as a, as a poet and a writer, you probably have very strong opinions about how imagination and creativity can uh, be a way to maybe not escape the world, but have a different view of it. You know, my brother is also a writer, but it's as mm-hmm. if we've divided the world in two. My brother is a journalist and he's been a television producer. And, but here's me, I write fiction and poetry. And we've discussed this a lot, um, how imagination, for a journalist, you have to be very specific and very careful and realistic about what you're writing. If you're reporting on something, it has to be exactly what happened. Mm -hmm. But for me, um, I can just, decide to create whatever world I want to create. Uh, my brother and I, we had a very difficult childhood. Our, mo- our mother died early. And again, as I had mentioned early, my father remarried. It was um, a difficult relationship that I had with my stepmother and my brother. So for me, I, I remember I um, actually had a picture on my wall in the bedroom of... Um, 
the Loch Ness Monster, who, of course, is probably the precursor of Senny. Mm -hmm. I hung a picture on the wall of the Loch Ness Monster, my stepmother, who sadly was this sort of quintessential evil stepmother, came in one day and she said, why do you have that on the wall? It's sacrilegious. And I was very confused. Like we were not religious in any way. So I didn't know why uh, a picture of the Loch Ness Monster would be sacrilegious. But um, I imagined that he existed and he was off somewhere in the cold, cold dark, dark waters of Scotland. So imagination for me has always been a way of talking to myself and um, creating a world that, you know, creating people in a world that were interesting to me. Before my mother died, I was, I think, 12 or 13, she gave me a typewriter, you know, an old man. This was a very long time ago, so there were manual typewriters. Mm -hmm. And I still have that old little gray manual typewriter. I can see it now sitting on my desk. And it's just, you know, a way of reminding me of, how all of this began that even when I was a little girl, I was writing stories. So it must be something that's part of my nature. My brother's nature is to see the world um, in very specific and realistic ways. And mine is to be the person who imagines other kinds of worlds. So I, I always joke with him that he got the girl genes because he likes to cook and uh, he likes to have family gatherings and things like that. And I'm the one who's sort of sitting in my room on a purple couch, which is my office, and writing stories. So, yeah, I mean, I, I thank you for sharing that. Um, I, I, I also feel like writing can be a way to, and maybe even fiction and metaphor and myth in particular, um, can definitely be ways to think through and write through ideas that are maybe a little bit more intangible, like with journalism, like, you know, the facts and you can report right. facts, but there's so much more to like a story than numbers and facts. Um, so I, I mean, I, that's why, at least why I like to read fiction is like, it gets at parts that aren't real, but like are almost more real. Um, but I, I digress. Um, I guess I'm sort of wondering, given given that, um, did you like have any realizations in yourself or like relationships with real people that you've had that like sort of changed your perspective as you were writing the story? Or like if if there's anything, I guess you mentioned that you you grew up or you had family vacations in was it Rockland? Um, that was Rockaway, kind of Rockaway, New York, yeah, mm -hmm. Rockaway. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of similar to like the place of Watkins Glen. So I guess I'm just sort of this is a very, this is a not specific question. Um, so I guess if you have any, any comments or anything you want to go, go off of there between. Yeah. I, I think I have a general idea of what you're asking me. Yeah. And I have, <laughs> I have, I have an idea of how to answer you. Uh, I've written a lot about what changed my life as a writer. And that was when I discovered the poetry of Leonard Cohen. Mm -hmm. um, I was 17 and, you know, I've been in school, going to English classes, and they made you read terrible poetry. I remember in specifically Robert Browning's My Last Duchess, and I had no idea what this was about. And I thought this was 
poetry was just, you know, incomprehensible stuff written by old men a million years ago. However, I knew Leonard Cohen because he was, uh, at the time he was, there was a song on the radio that was famous. It was Suzanne. Mm -hmm. Um, And I knew his music. And I went into town one day in in Rockaway. And in the drugstore, there was a rack of books out front. And I was probably waiting for a prescription or something. And I'm going through the rack of books. And I see, oh, is a book of poetry by Leonard Cohen. I didn't know that he also wrote. It was called The Spice Box of Earth. And I bought it thinking, well, this will be interesting. And I then I had to take a bus home. So it was about mm, 45 minute bus ride. That bus ride changed my life because I read this book and I th- remember thinking, I can do this. Hmm. It was poetry that was written in the language that I understood. It was written like a person. And it made such a difference because that, you know, that that feeling of being struck by lightning. I know what my life is going to be. I know I can do this. I understand this. And many years later, many years, I I had a chance to meet him. I had a friend who was producing... Uh, a cable television show when cable TV first came to New York and it, the show was called hot topics. And we all used it as a way of getting to meet the people we admired. And I remember um, you might know Richard Belzer because he was on law and order SVU. He was detective Munch, hmm. but before he was detective Munch, he was a stand up comic. And I used to write for Richard uh, you're not never supposed to say you wrote for a comedian because they wrote most of their own material, but I wrote for Richard. Anyway, he hosted the show and I begged him, get Leonard Cohen. So Leonard Cohen comes on the show and the guy walks in and he must have, I guess, then been in his 30s. It's like the handsomest man that ever existed, you know, dark hair, dark <laughs> eyes, very brooding. And I remember I went up to him and I, you know, I started with my, oh, Mr. Cohen, I read your stuff and you changed my life and blah, 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 blah. And he kind of looked at me and sort of patted me on the head and said, that's nice. He said, I'm, you know, I'm really tired. I've been on the road. He said, and when I finish this show, what's this show? He didn't even know that. I said, hot time, blah, blah. He said, when I finish, I'd like to go to a movie. Are there any good movies you'd recommend? I don't remember what I said, but I always really hope I, I hope I sent him to a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the fact that he sort of, you know, instead of going, oh, yes, I'm so glad you love my work. He was just this tired guy who yeah. was dealing with me like, here's this nice girl and maybe she knows a movie. And I that also I felt that was so dear of him to yeah. behave like just a guy. Instead of, you know, this girl is mooning all over him, but he's going, that's nice, girl. That's nice, sweetheart. Where can I go to a movie? So, yeah, Leonard Cohen changed my life. So anything I write, I always uh, I always tell people when they ask me about it, I always say it begins with Leonard Cohen because he, he taught me how to write by reading his work. Mm-hmm. I learned how to write poetry. And you were talking before about um, liking to read fiction and... I've always, when, you know, people will ask, how do you, how do you learn to write? How do, how does a teacher teach you to write? Or when do you know you can be a writer? And the only answer I ever have is 
I know you can teach yourself to write by reading. Mm -hmm. So that for me, reading is, here we go with another double landscape. Reading is a double landscape. I read the story because it's enjoyable and someone's telling me a good story. But I also read it as a sort of how-to manual. How did they do this? How did they get the character from here to there? How did they um, come up with conflict? And in the beginning, I even read it for where do you put the quote marks? I mean, I knew nothing about how to, how to write. So I, it was literally like, how do you construct a sentence with periods and commas and semicolons? So I, I always credit Leonard Cohen for teaching me how to write. But there are a lot of fiction writers I've read who've taught me how to construct a story. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah, I don't really know if I had a specific question. Um, that's really cool about you got to meet Leonard Cohen. That's Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he was gorgeous. That's what I always remember. This <laughs> man walked through the door. And, you know, some people have a light around them mm. that just you just know this is a special person. He had that light around him. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check out that poetry book. I also only know him for his songs, but... He's written an enormous amount of poetry, and mm -hmm. he's a remarkable poet. You All you have to do is Google him, uh, and you'll find his poetry. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess kind of, kind of from that or something, I guess what I was maybe trying or loosely trying to get at earlier um, was like writing as a way of maybe almost like processing. Um, so I guess I'm kind of wondering if, like you, you mentioned that you had a brother. Um, I, I anticipate or I, I hope that he is well and does not have Alzheimer's, but I guess I'm kind of curious if like those, like your real life relations impacted the story slash how the story and its emergence maybe changed your own relations with your, with your family or your brother. Well, let me start by saying the reason I dedicated the book to him was to make clear that he's fine. He's yeah, fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as a matter of fact, I, I had him read it beforehand because I said, Phil, I want you to know this is not about us. Um, I have a very hard time writing uh, romances or marriages or I, I, I just don't do well with that. So. In my books, the important relationships are usually some kind of friendship. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a friend relationship that's important in this book, too. Um, Susan does have a, a friend that she's close with. But um, really what the story was about in, in terms of processing and, uh, you know, my life, family life, for me, it was about writing about getting older, Mm -hmm. because the people in this story are in their late sixties and seventies. And I'm actually, I'm, I started this book. I think I was 68. I'm 70 years old now, which to me is unimaginable, you know, to an old hippie mm -hmm. I, in my mind, I'm still about 19 years old, but so the book was me in a way talking to myself about processing, getting older and the unimaginable things when you're younger, you cannot imagine that your body is going to break down. You're, you know, you're going to become forgetful when you get older. Forget Alzheimer's. I still, uh, I still wander around the house wondering where I left things 
which has nothing to do with anything other than I'm, I'm getting older and you get forgetful. So really it was processing uh, aging and how confusing and confronting it is, especially when you did have the kind of life that Susan says she has in the book, <clears throat> excuse me, and I had when I was younger, which was the, you know, I was the characters like me in a way in that she says she's been on her own since she was uh, 18. I was, I left home when I was 18. I lived in the village. I was on my own. And so was the character in the book. So it's a way of examining what happens to someone who thinks when they're younger, they're immortal as we all do. And then you get to a certain age and you realize, Oh, I'm not. And so that's really what it was about. And it did, it, it, my brother and I have been good friends, you know, as long as the two of us have been alive together, we've been very good friends. And so the book also became a jumping off point for the both of us to discuss uh, for both of us, what getting older was like and the importance of it's just a whole conversation about siblings and how important Mm -hmm. it is if you have siblings that you're close to because they're sort of witnesses for you. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, you can say, I can say to my brother, do you remember this? How did, I think it happened this way. What do you think happened? And, you know, he and I will talk about our different perspectives of what happened. It's very important. So in the story, also the importance of siblings, the sister has to make a decision about whether or not she's going to take care of her older brother who, uh, does have Alzheimer's in the early stages of it. And she makes the commitment that she's going to do that, even though in the book, the two of them have been estranged for a long time. So it was also a way of looking at the relationships between siblings and how important mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I feel like I, I definitely got that from, the, the, from, from this book about sort of how almost like rekindling that I don't, I don't know if it's a romance, but I, I remember you, you, there was like a line in, in there about when they're standing at the lake and something something weird has happened or they're getting over an argument or something. And he makes some comment about how beautiful the lake is. And she's just like, this is weird. Like this romantic scene is happening and we're siblings. And, and, and I feel like, um, you know, romance has, there's so many different, there's so many different types of, of love. And I feel like the relationship that the brother and sister have in the story like you see it grow and I think that that it, I mean it's a beautiful thing um and I like what you said about sort of family as as witnessing um and remembering and that seems all the more important in in this book about Alzheimer's and losing your memory um yeah well there there are it's an important point you just made <clears throat> there are different kinds of love you know, there's romantic love and uh, there's love between parents and children. But the love that when you have a sibling that you really like, Mm -hmm. the love between yourself and a sister or brother uh, is very special because no matter how much you tell your, as an adult, excuse me, no matter how much you tell your partner about your childhood, they weren't there. Mm -hmm but your sibling was. Mm -hmm. So no one else can really know as much about your growing up 
as your sibling because they were there with you. And my brother and I, I, I think over the years, have learned the way the love between a brother and a sister also changes mm-hmm. in you depend on each other, especially as you get older. I mean, he's married, I'm married. We have, he has a, a son, he has a busy family life. He's much more social than I am. But we always, you know, we find a way every week or every other week to talk to each other, to check in with each other, because we've, not only are we friends, we're a very special kind of friends, because it's almost as if we have a secret between us. And the secret is, we really know how some of the um, neurosis, neurosis, neuroses, that the two of us have developed, we, we both know where it came from. And we can say, we can talk to each other about our mother, our stepmother, our father. And, um, you know, even at, at this age, we've joked about it so much, you never get over uh, the things that happened to you when you were a kid, no matter how much therapy you've been through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're still dealing with the things that happened to you in your childhood. Mm-hmm. So it's helpful to have my brother around to be able to say, can you believe it? After 50 years, I'm still thinking about the fact that she did X, Y, Z. So, yeah. Yeah, I know me and my younger sister, we we often chat about about these things and are, oh, no, I wouldn't say reworking, but I feel like sort of like there is that continual process of rehashing and remembering and postulating what it all means. So... <laughs> It's, yeah, it's very important and it's very, it's very helpful mm-hmm. because also you can't really lie to your sibling. You no. They know what <laughs> happened. <laughs> right, right. You know, you can, you can lie to your partner, the white lie or intentional lie about what happened when you're a kid, but you can't lie to your brother because he was there. Mm-hmm. So. I guess in the, in the story, um, it feels like there's, um, especially in the beginning, like this family dynamics or tension even. Um, and I guess I'm kind of wondering if you could describe how, how maybe the, the characters end up sort of reclaiming their own past with and uh, relationship with, with, their, with their parents. Because, um, like, I guess I, I can have you sort of, like, describe it and set the scene. But, like, the father was, like, a race car driver and and all that, which is why they even know about Watkins Glen to begin with. Yeah, um, the father was <clears throat> not a, um, you know, he wasn't part of the main racing scene. He was a sort of, uh, not quite an outlaw drag racer, but he was, the, there are, if you're close enough to Watkins Glen, you know that then there are people who have drag races outside the main racing scene. And that's what the father was. So he was kind of a romantic character to both of them. And they're trying to, as as time goes on, the two of them talking about their father are also trying to come to terms with it, it, let me put it this way. It's a very strange experience as you get older to realize that you've, you're, you've gotten to a point maybe where you're older than your parents were. Hmm. Um, I've, my mother died now about 30 years. I've lived past, I've lived 30 years past the time when she died. So it's a strange thing to think of 
your parent as an adult to think of your parents and who they were mm-hmm. and that they had actual lives mm-hmm. that they must have had dreams they had things they wanted to do and things they cared about so one of the things that goes on in the book between the brother and the sister is that they are coming to terms with the idea that their parents were not just their parents their parents were people and it's almost a shocking idea to process mm-hmm. that your parents had lives of their own and maybe there were things they wanted that they didn't achieve and, and ways they wanted to live that they didn't get to live. Uh, and I, I think that's also was my way, the author's way of working through understanding that my own parents probably didn't have the lives that they imagined for themselves. I mean, can you imagine your parents as children? When I started, I had a lot of things I was mad at my father about when I was an adult, but the way I learned to forgive him for the things I was angry at him about was when I began to realize, wait, there was a time when my father was a boy. Mm -hmm. He was a, a child. And then he grew up and he went in the army and there were things that my father fought in World War II. There were things he probably wanted. And so to bring in the the main character, Mark and Susan, to bring in their father, even more than their mother, to bring in their parents as people Mm -hmm. and to make them go through the process of seeing their parents as people was part of what I was working through in the book. Because it it's it is shocking to think that, you know, your parents once were children, and you know, there were things they they wanted, God knows what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father, I know, my father wanted to be a comedian. He wanted to be a tap dancer, he wanted to be a singer, and he ended up working in a factory. Mm-hmm. So, in the book, the 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 grown children realize that their father uh, probably had dreams of being a race car driver that he never got to realize. And so they're having more sympathy for their parents than they did when they were younger. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, uh, the sort of maybe like, I don't know if it's a contrast, maybe, maybe it is, but with like Mark, like the character Mark losing his memory ish while also Susan sort of, and maybe them both, um, sort of recontextualizing and re-remembering and I don't want to say rewriting, but yeah, like recontextualizing their past and their real relationship with their parents. I feel like that there's like a a really nice symmetry there um, in terms of just like thinking about memory and how it changes over time. Well, we, we all experience that, even if we're not conscious of it. Mm-hmm we can only, the past can only exist for us in the way we remember it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to realize that your memory of it can't be the complete truth because it's a child's memory. Mm-hmm. You know, later you can remember what a teenager remembered or what a you know 20-year-old remembered or 30-year-old. But that's one of the gifts and one of the shortcomings of memory mm-hmm. is that it, it belongs only to you. Your memory belongs only to you. You're the only one who's going to remember your life the way you remember it. Mm-hmm. My brother, as I said, he can be my witness and help me 
understand what happened and what didn't happen. But the way he remembers things differs from sometimes from the way I remember things. And that's fine because his memory belongs to him and mine belongs to me. But also as you, as you get older, um, you can't help but go through a kind of review of your life. And it appears, it, it can appear to you almost as a timeline and you can see, you know, you, you see your life almost as a movie that you starred in. You, you appeared in this movie and it's not even looking back and saying, what could I have done differently or what did I do wrong? Or it's just, it, it's, a, it's a gift to be able to review it and to look back on it and, you know, to, to hope to hope you did your best with it. And your, your life is never what you thought it was going to be when you were, you know, 20 or something. But, you know, it's, that's what memory does. It gives you the gift of being able to travel back and um, look at who you were when you were younger. You know, even if I remember last week, it's probably, my memory of it is probably different than what actually happened. But that's okay, because I think we take our memory and uh, help us soothe ourselves Hmm. at times. You know, you, 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 comfort yourself with your memory mm-hmm. yeah i feel like that that kind of goes back to what we or what i maybe mentioned earlier about uh like almost not not to say that memory is fiction but like when when things like that when the story even though it's not like totally true it's like more true in a way or like it's more like meaningful because there's like a narrative and a remembrance about about it all yeah, well, um, it's your life, so the way you remember it is the way it happened. It's what happened to you. Yeah, you know, it's it, you can have ten people in a room, and they're all going to tell you a different story about what happened sometime. But it doesn't matter. What matters is what happened to you, what you think happened, and that's again, that's the gift of memory. You get to uh, have the life that you remember. Now, I, I'm starting to see where so this could become a heated discussion between you and your journalist brother in terms of getting, nailing down the true story. Well, like I said, you know, he um, uh, he sees things. He also spent a long time producing America's Most Wanted. So mm. he had to look at a lot of very sad and, and difficult uh, situations that happened. And so he... I, I think he does see things very clearly, but with an enormous amount of compassion. Mm-hmm. So I think he has compassion for my memories and my storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that um, something to sort of come back to the, to the book, um, you sort of leave a, a cliffhanger as to what happens to the, to the brother and the family. You don't have to, necessarily give that away, but I guess I'm kind of curious as we start to wrap up, um, what you hope readers sort of take away from the, from the story. I think what I, or I hope what they take away from that, from it is that is, is exactly, is hope, is exactly that hope that because, uh, the brother has this extraordinary imagination. I mean, at the end, the sister is sort of taking him, 
uh, to other lakes to look for other lake monsters to, because he's still worried about what happened to the monster in, in Seneca Lake. But what she's doing is indulging his his fantasy because she begins she understands that the lake monster is his projection of himself, and so she's taking him to places where he can continue to have a projection of himself that's hopeful. You know, if you really want to go into kind of psychology, what do they, what do um, psychologists always say about dreams about water? That when you dream about water, you're dreaming about the unconscious and, and, you know, you're diving into your own memory and unconscious. So she's taking him to places where he can let his imagination and his unconscious take over because as his conscious mind begins to fail, she's hoping that he can live in imagination. And so he won't suffer from knowing how much his real life is failing physically and mentally. So it was the idea that love and compassion can take you through aging and that love and compassion can help you through illness and that love and compassion as you get older become even more valuable. So as the sister who didn't really in the beginning want to take care of her brother becomes completely committed to taking care of him, she's also learning herself. She's cut herself off and she thinks of herself in many ways as a kind of a tough person who doesn't need anybody else. But she begins to understand how much love and compassion are even important to her. And that's really what the ending of the book is. So what happens to Mark? I'm sure he gets sicker and sicker. Alzheimer's doesn't leave you alone. Alzheimer's continues to ruin your ability to think and it you know ruins your body physically. So she's taking him wherever he will feel less of that and he'll live more in his imagination. So that's, if there's an end to the story, it just goes on and on that way. Yeah. I think that's really um, beautiful to have like the story, even though it's like, you're like, wait, what happens uh, to sort of have like that take like step back and be like, it doesn't actually really, really matter what happens. It's like exactly. it's about the family connection and that they, that they grew together more and were able to sort of heal the former family. Like they, like the siblings have been separated and now they're like, they're more together and they're more like more family than they, than they had been and grown in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise. So, right. So what actually happens mm -hmm. in a plot like way yeah. doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. It matters what they feel and how their feelings have grown. And it matters what, Susan has learned, as I said, about love and compassion, mm -hmm. and that Mark will learn to hold on to her and go wherever she takes him. Mm -hmm. So sort of as a, as a last question, I guess I'm sort of wondering, uh, what's next for you or what's the next story that readers can be on the lookout for? The next book that will be published um, will probably be published next fall. It's a book of short stories, and it's completely focused on New York City during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And it arose from, I grew up in New York City. I love the city. Uh, it's in my blood. And I got very angry during the during the pandemic about how people were saying, well, New York is over. It's, it's a ghost town. It's lost. It'll never be 
what it was. And, you know, now there's a lot of violence and everybody's saying, oh, the city is terrible. Well, I decided that's, I mean, I remember living through the 1970s in New York City when it was also a very difficult time and people said the same thing. New York is Oz. New York is Wonderland. It always will be. And so these short stories, each one is about a different person's perspective of the pandemic. And each one, even though the circumstances for some of these people are very difficult, in the end, the book is a love story to the city. It's my love letter to New York. And also it's my love letter to urban centers that, you know, people are always saying cities are over and terrible places to live. Well, I'm a child of the city and cities are a wonderful place to live. And, uh, New York, with its great diversity of people and its mixture of races and religions and all of that, is a remarkable and resilient place. And um, it's not a ghost town, and it'll survive its current troubles. So there are nine stories. It's about nine different people living through the pandemic. So that I, th- I think the title we're going to use for it is The Game Cafe. And hopefully that'll be published in the fall, also for May Apple Press. Cool. I feel like uh, I'm a, more of a country person at heart, so maybe maybe I'll have to check it out to see if it'll change change my mind. I hope so. At least it'll make. It I think it'll make like people the, who think less of New York City. It'll make them think better of it. Yeah, it's definitely a magical place. I'll, I'll definitely get yes. that coming through that yes. tunnel and like seeing the skyline. I'm like, all right, all right, pretty cool. Yes. <laughs> Besides, you know, I spent my, uh, from the time I was 18 till I was 36, I lived in the village. I lived in Greenwich Village mm-hmm. when it was still, you know, kind of a hippie beat kind of place. And uh, it's also, it's a, it's a reminiscence of when the city was that kind of a place, when you could be 18 years old and rent an apartment for $500 mm. instead of $5,000 a month. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Places, places change. And I guess like that, that dual landscape that you had mentioned yes. earlier. Exactly. Absolutely. So. Well, cool. Um, well, thank you again for coming on and talking about all this with me. Uh, I think the, the points about imagination and family and again, that dual landscape, that was very, very, very interesting. So thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you for asking me. It was a delight. <laughs>